the reason why we actually started off as very uh, at that price point. So in a, in New Zealand, the product was retailing at over two hundred dollars for the same product, and then Dr. Sharada and I just came to the conclusion that our original mission was actually to democratize healthcare, and we don't want let's call it anti-aging to be just reserved for those who are the select few who can afford it. We actually want it to be something that's affordable to everyone. So we actually probably went through a rebrand exercise about six months ago where we changed the price point, changed the messaging. And so we're really coming at it from the perspective of affordable luxury, that it's something that everyone can access. Welcome to the Glam and Grow podcast. I'm your host, Takara Suet, Head of Partnerships at Wavebreak. On this show, we talk with leaders of beauty, fashion, and lifestyle brands. We dive into their stories, lessons learned, and perspectives on how the industry is ever evolving. Subscribe and join us each week as we glam and grow. This episode is brought to you by Wavebreak. Most brands don't email right, and it costs them. With ad costs getting more and more expensive, a world-class email and SMS program is essential. This is why Wavebreak exists. We're the premier email and SMS marketing agency that helps brands take their retention programs to the next level. If you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co slash call. Joining me today is Andrew Bilski, CEO and co-founder of Skin by Dr. Sherrod. Thank you so much for joining me today. No worries. It's a pleasure to be on Takara. I'm a big fan of the podcast and really love the way you interview your guests and the authenticity you bring. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love a good Australian accent. Uh, Half my family's from Australia, so I love the Aussies. So you have a very diverse and impressive resume to say the least. So let's start by you just walking me through some of your previous experience and how you ended up here. Sure. So again, I'm Australian by origin, as you can tell uh, from my accent. I grew up in Canberra and Sydney. Um, But then since then, I've essentially lived and worked uh, around the world. You know, if I take a step back, I grew up uh, in a small town in Canberra. Both of my parents were immigrants to Australia, um, half Polish, half Taiwanese. What a lovely combination. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, yeah, they were both public librarians, so definitely not entrepreneurs, didn't have a corporate background at all. So yeah, that's really kind of what my childhood looked like. And then fast forwarding to to really the start of your career, you were at El Catterton, which obviously is very well known for anyone listening who's not familiar with El Catterton. At a high level, it is the world's leading consumer growth investor. It's just been on fire. So I'm sure you learned a lot uh, working across so many high growth and well-known brands. Um, what were some of your biggest learnings from your from your time there? Yeah, thank you. So um, again, for your guests, L. Catterton is essentially the investment arm of Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. They invest in uh, mass market brands that you would know, especially in the US. So they previously invested in Peloton, uh, Jessica Alba's The Honest, uh, Honest Company in terms of skincare and makeup, Il Maquillage, as well as Copari. Um, I think the thing that I really enjoyed about it was we just got to see so many different businesses across different industries. We got to see what works. We got to see what doesn't work. And I think the thing that um, that I really enjoyed was, uh, especially as it relates to beauty, is everyone may look like they're doing something on the outside, 
But deep down, when you see how different people are executing and the different models they're running, it was just really fascinating to see how how people are going about the entrepreneurship differently. And I think um, this is something which I'd love to talk about with the guests is, for example, when you're building a beauty brand, um, you may have the same end product. So, for example, skincare, but you may be deciding to build a luxury brand, say, Augustina's Beta, or you may be doing something that's much more uh, mass market. And so that real brand vision really defines almost every daily decision that you do from step one in terms of the team you recruit, the channels you go to market. Uh, what your unit economics look like as well. Okay, so there's so much to unpack there. Obviously, some massive name drop brands. Um, and you definitely don't have to be specific about any brands if you don't don't wish to do so. But can you describe to me a little bit more in depth your maybe your methodology about how you went about finding brands? Like, were they really inbound or were you kind of seeking to acquire these brands? And then what was the process when they were acquired? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. And this is one of the reasons why I really loved um, El Caditan. They really think about investing from a big picture. So even before looking at brands, they will look at a market segment and they will think, okay, what sectors or segments of the economy have attractive tailwinds? And then they basically do a bit of future or crystal ball gazing and think about what's the natural play here And then where can we position ourselves? So to give your listeners some sense, uh, if you're looking at the fitness space, for example, whether that's a Peloton or a Core Power Yoga or a SoulCycle, which they own, is they realized that uh, in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was all about big box gym. But as we um, uh, fast forward 20 years in the States, it's really about wallet share. And, And people now are no longer just having one single membership but they're really actually having maybe a bit of yoga or a core um, fitness offering. And in addition to the Equinox that they like. So really they then work out, they first work out what's the thesis, how, how is this sector going to evolve? And then they'll decide how to play. So in that particular example, they actually did a roll up where they bought core power yoga, pure bar, Uh, as well as a lot of other, let's call it niche box um, fitness concepts, because they realized that it was just about um, gaining the wallet share of the consumer rather than, say, going to big box gyms. And again, I I think this is maybe a bit interesting for for some listeners out there is we also did investments in China um, because I was working, looking after the Asia Pacific area. And essentially, fitness in China is almost where it was like in the United States 30 years ago. So really there, it really was just about big box gyms and essentially rolling out concepts in much the way LA Fitness or Gold's Gym may have been in the US, say, 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then on the D2C brand side, was there a specific methodology or was it were they sometimes going after brands that kind of were competitors for each other or, or what did that, what did that look like? Or, or was there a concept of maybe like working them seamlessly so they, they were in a com- competition? Great question. Great question. So I, think, I hope I asked that right. That was like a tongue twister. <laughs> no, 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 definitely. It's the exact same methodology. So for example, what we're seeing um, in D2C will really depend on what industry we're in. So Let's talk for- about beauty just to be a little more specific. Of course, of course. So for example, in beauty, um, at least when I was working there, we had really started to notice the consumer becoming much more discerning um, in terms of ingredients uh, and efficacy. And so really one of the one of the years I was there, 
um, they would say, okay, let's look at the organic or natural beauty space. Let's look at where everyone is positioned. And then let's look at, you know, where does value basically accrete, say, over the next five to 10 years. And what we realized in at least the organic beauty space or the natural beauty space was that there were a lot of small players, very profitable, but the difficulty that they had was reaching scale. And the reason why that is, is because um, it, it's very easy to have a, a small brand that gets to a certain level. But once you want to take the next um, step, uh, you're looking at scale in terms of your backend systems, whether that's accounting and finance, whether that's marketing, sales and distribution. So really one of the plays that they came up with there was thinking, right, how can we take a number of these smaller brands and at least bring some value by, say, aggregating them so that we had a single back office function uh, to allow them to scale? How can we also have complementarity between different brands? So that's the overall big picture. And then when they go and execute, obviously you don't simply win or invest in the brands that you're looking at. So a lot lot of the times how that plays out is, let's call it a moving thesis, and you will have an idea of the end goal in mind. Um, So for example, how you want to play with regards to organic beauty as it relates to, say, facial serums. And then you'll then work out, okay, uh, we notice that the consumer who will go after one brand will tend to have these characteristics. So we're going to look at um, then investing in other brands that are complement to that uh, that consumer's daily regime. Yeah, that's so interesting. And when you say scale, I'm just curious your perspective, given your background. What do you think that exact infliction point is? It is, is it a certain revenue or or you going internationally? Like what what moment do you think that really is where a brand should really think about? Hmm, maybe we can't handle this and we're about to hit that, to hit really scale. That's right. So it really depends on, there's different stair steps through a brand's uh, life. So what we typically notice is many brands can get to one to $3 million quite easily in terms of revenue. And then you essentially have a stair step there. There's an inflection point basically to get to about $10 million. And then there's another inflection point to basically get beyond $50 million plus. And what that means is essentially you need a different business model to execute at each of those levels of scales. So I know for some previous brands you've had on the podcast, the organizational structure, the distribution channels that they had to get to $1 to $3 million will be very different to what they need to get to $10 million and again, that's going to change again when they want to take that next stage, next stage to $50 million plus in revenue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then moving on from El Catterton, but I'm so curious, was there any was there any brand you saw make like just a massive mistake? And again, you don't have to mention any names, but I'm just curious behind the scenes um, what you learned. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think most brands will tend to make mistakes. And the brands that we saw that typically failed were ones that just made, they didn't tend to make one bad mistake, but it was typically the accumulation of say two to three wrong strategic decisions that they made in in a quick time. And the ones that we saw typically was picking the wrong, um, say, leadership uh, for the company. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. So you have a lot of companies that have one to three million uh, that were started by a founder. And then essentially when they get want to scale beyond $10 million plus, they think it's time to corporatize the organization. So they bring in a professional CEO. 
And a lot of the times that hire was a mistake in terms of, because that really leadership then determines your strategy, who else you recruit in the brand, and then what strategic direction. So you made a comment at the start of the podcast, do we um, go into adjacent product verticals within the US or do we just keep doing what we're doing, but we try and take it internationally? So that's kind of one of the mistakes that we had seen. Uh, I think the second one that we had seen was that, especially once you start, you're generating a lot of money, you tend to be profitable, especially in skincare. Just for your listeners, you know, we tend to see EBITDA margins of a good skincare brand between 25 to 35%. And for for everyone's um, reference, that's a really high EBITDA margin industry. It's very similar to software. If you compare it to someone like uh, compared to say like a Zara or an H&M, their margins are typically five to 6% EBITDA, but you know, they're all about making five to 6% on just a huge base of, of revenue. So what we had seen is you get to that stage, um, you're making a lot of money and your option is not what can we do? It's what shouldn't we do? And the problem that we saw was a lot of uh, companies at that stage had too many options, trying to go after too many things, too many growth initiatives, and end up executing poorly. Mm -hmm. So that would probably be the second mistake. And then the third uh, mistake that I saw is, and I've definitely seen it in the US, is there's this obsession with scale and growth. And so a lot of then companies, to get to the next level, often try and then they believe they have a strong brand, but then they believe that, hey, we can grow this brand into whether that's omni-channel formats uh, or alternatively a lifestyle brand. And that just really wasn't the core essence of, of what we got them to the dance. So what I've seen particularly with D2C, and you know, you would have seen it with a, a lot of well-known brands, whether in, in men's shavers, I'm sure, I'm sure your, your customers, uh, sorry, your listeners can guess, is everyone then thought, okay, we need a retail presence. And what I've really seen has been the death of a lot of brands has just been executing physical retail very poorly. Interesting. So do you think it's going after retail or just the poor execution? I think it's a combination of both because the unit economics to operate a retail store is very, very different to when you were doing DTC. Um, And then the execution in terms of how do you generate traffic, um, how do you service that channel? What kind of skills do you need to execute is, is very, very different. And, you know, that's one of the things that I really admired about the LVMH, the Louis Vuitton group, is they can just execute the yeah. uh, physical retail strategy. They have the playbook uh, down to a T. So they really know what they're doing. But that's a very, very different skill set to, to scaling an e-commerce business. Yeah, definitely. I feel like every, almost every guest, I won't say every, but almost every guest I've had on the show, there's always the fundamental pain point of finding the right talent, right? Whether it's from leadership or down to anything else. Um, So I would always wonder that at like a a company like Al Catterton, if you found like a few incredible CEOs, perhaps that were able to multitask, did they ever work on multiple brands or that was never something that was shared? No. Essentially. Almost, uh, you are almost hit the nail on the head, but it's slightly different. So I'll just make one comment with regards, because I did hear a lot of um, previous brands talk about finding the right people. I think that is one issue, um, that it is finding the right people. But what I've also noticed at El Cataton, it's finding the right people for the right roles. 
So a lot of people who may be in your brand or in your company may be a terrible CEO, but they would be great head of sales or vice versa. So it's ensuring what we noticed and at least the value that I think El Catterton brings was really recognizing um, someone's personality and their skill set and finding the right role for them in the company and then structuring their role so that they're set up for success. So it's not necessarily finding the right person in general, but it's finding the right person and then ensuring they have the structural incentives, uh, workplace environment for them to succeed in that brand. Um, so then onto your point about El Catterton in terms of do they have great CEOs working on multiple brands? It was actually a little different is when what they did is they actually had an investment team, which I was on, but they also had an operations team. And essentially an operations team um, was almost like a, a standing bench of superstars across marketing, finance, leadership. A lot of these people tended to be ex-management consultants, say from McKinsey or Bain, and they would initially buy a brand, bring on those bench players to execute the changes that they needed in the brand. And then they would bring on, let's call it the longer term operational folk, whether that's a head of sales, a head of marketing or a new CEO, they would then typically stay on with one brand for the life of the investment. And that investment can be anywhere from three years to typically around eight years. And then if someone was an absolute superstar, they would stay in the network and then they would typically then rotate them onto a different portfolio company. So they would work on multiple brands, but just not at the same time. That is so interesting. I have always wondered that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm moving on. I did a little more research about yourself. One nugget of information that I found super interesting is that you turned around Australia's most iconic boot brand, RM Williams, from huge losses to making a 200 million exit in just three years. So what can you tell me about that? How did you turn it around? And maybe what did you learn that you implement today? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I'm most uh, proud on having worked on, because I think it's great to take something that's good and make it great. It's a completely different uh, proposition to take something that's uh, struggling and then turn it into something that was great. So my first day, I actually joined and uh, the first port of call I had was to walk into a meeting with all the banks um, who were essentially about to foreclose on the debt of the brand. Oh so you gosh. can imagine it was a pretty dark scenario. <laughs> yeah, oh I was gosh. there basically asking, begging them to give us another chance um, that we could actually fulfill the covenant commitments uh, that we had. And what we realized, we actually started... Um, uh, a process that El Catterton does a lot with the brand is you essentially do almost like a synopsis or due diligence on the brand to work out where they are today. What is the strengths? Uh, what aren't the strengths? And then what do they need to do um, in order to get to where we want them to get to? So it's very deliberate. It involves interviewing everyone in the company to get their idea of what is good, what's not going well. It's doing a lot of data analytics on part of the business so that you actually can understand and measure how you're tracking and what success looks like. And then essentially, it's coming up with a change management program of typically five to six key initiatives of what you need to turn uh, the brand around. So to give you a bit more specifics um, with RM Williams, it's essentially almost like a Chelsea boot uh, in Australia, probably the most iconic brand been around for almost 100 years, and we just know, knew that it had such a great 
brand in Australia and also into Asia, but they were just executing suboptimally. And so what I mean by that is they were fully vertically integrated in terms of having their own factory, but there were supply chain issues. There were chronic boot shortages. They also just didn't have a very good sense as to what were the unit economics across their channel. So they did both wholesale, retail, um, and direct-to-consumer e-com, but they just didn't understand uh, all that well the different costs of servicing each of those channels and what should be the right channel mix. And then the third thing I would say was just um, personnel. There were a lot of great people in the company, but they necessarily weren't working in the positions that would set them up for success. And so, again, to give you something that I'd never seen before, typically when you look at scaling a brand, everyone thinks you need to have uh, a corporate CEO, someone who has worked in Fortune 500 and you know knows uh, how to navigate a large corporate environment. In this case, we actually took um, a gentleman who was had a marketing background and a sales background, and he really understood brand and D2C. And then we were able to empower him with a leadership position in the company where you just saw, saw the total DNA of the brand evolve to the next level. Wow. So before we came, it had been quite a stuffy, old, traditional brand. And he essentially made, uh, let's call it, took that essence and just made it a much more cool hipster vibe, as well as turned it into a product, um, an Australian export product that you could take to the US or you could take to Asia. So really, let's call it globalizing and internationalizing, uh, internationalizing the brand. To give you some sense, for example, the brand was about 70% rural customers and 30% urban customers when we first started. And now that that customer mix has almost flipped um, since over the oh. years since we've modernized the brand. That's so interesting. You know, just to that effect, especially a lot of these legacy brands, do you think with the right team, I heard I heard you clearly in the right roles, which I think is a really key point. Do you think any brand could really turn around if they're if they're in a downward spiral with the right team in the right roles? Yeah, I think I think I've witnessed that not only at El Cataton. I won't give you some specifics, but there's a very well-known, let's call it, uh, let's call it beauty brand that I mentioned at the start of the okay. podcast. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they have a, they were started by a celebrity and when mm-hmm. we purchased them, they weren't doing all so well. Um, but I think this is a public information. We managed to exit that brand probably about two to three years ago and take them from loss making to profitable. And essentially that was, as I mentioned, you know, it's not just changing the personnel it's almost like doing open heart surgery where what we find is it's not just people, but it's systems and processes, channel mix, how even their marketing function is set up. So an interesting anecdote I want to give you is you really need to understand what are we trying to build here? So if you look at a lot of the luxury brands, even in beauty, they're very, let's call it innovation and design led. So if you're looking in the fashion space at a, a fashion house, whether that's a Versace Typically, the creative designer will be the point from where everything else stems because they design the collection, they come up with the creative endeavor. But if you're going for a brand that is, say, more um, all about function and fit and all about, let's call it, core range, uh, say, an RM Williams, then you're less design-led and you're much more led by supply chain and product and manufacturing. So I think when it comes to DTC, it's so important for founders to think, what are we really trying to build here? Are we trying to build a luxury brand? Are we trying to build um, a niche market segment? 
and then really define what success looks like and then work backwards from there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think I think a lot of brands, uh, particularly when they're they're in the sta- the early stages and they were founded by, you know, an entrepreneur who doesn't really understand maybe the operations point or even the design point. I think that makes sense that that's where they start to have, you know, sort of some of those problems. Here's a fun fact. Over 81% of consumers are opted into text messages from their favorite brands. They're finding out first about limited time offers, new products, and they're having two-way conversations, all via text messaging. And that, my friends, is where Attentive comes in. Attentive is a personalized text messaging platform that lets you grow your SMS subscriber list, interact with customers in real time, and unlock a new source of revenue. With tons of best practices built in, Attentive makes sure your audience stays engaged too. Thousands of innovative brands like CB2, Pura Vida, and Coach have created magical customer experiences and driven millions in online revenue using Attentive-powered text messages. Meet your secret weapon to cut through the clutter, grow brand love, and drive more sales. Relevant, engaging, mobile first. That's Attentive. See what they can do for you at attentivemobile.com slash wavebreak. Attentive, drive sales with text message marketing. So let's fast forward to today. Uh, talk to me about Skin by Dr. Sherrod. I'd love to hear how you met and more about Dr. Sherrod's background. Yeah, it, it's an interesting story. And um, Dr. Sherrod, I first came into contact with him when I was working at El Cataton. He was, he's essentially one of the leading skin cancer surgeons globally. He runs the largest clinic out of Auckland, New Zealand, uh, and has written on all different types of topics, such as sunscreen, anti-aging, the genetics of health. And he was the gentleman that we would engage to do the due diligence on the medical and, and, and science legitimacy of a brand. So we looked at a ton of different skincare brands or uh, let's call it nutrition and vitamin brands. And he was the gentleman we would say, can you tell us if the science is real? What are the types of competitive advantage behind this product category? So I actually met him professionally. Um, we were looking at investing in the Manuka honey industry. It's less well known in the US, but uh, if you ever go to a Whole Foods, you can see an $80 jar of honey. Yeah. <laughs> Manuka honey from New Zealand. And we essentially uh, got him, for example, to review what, uh, and it's, it's known for its antibacterial, anti-inflammatory um, properties to review the science for us and to let us know um, uh, whether it was real, all the, pe- all the uh, academic papers which had been published so that we could really understand the product category. So we worked together professionally and we just discovered that we had this great alignment in terms of our ethics, uh, in terms of how we wanted to conduct uh, ourselves with integrity and also as well, just the, let's call it mission orientated um, perspective we had on business. You know, we, we weren't interested in business from just purely making money, but we thought that you could actually have a business that brought a great product, but actually also benefited people, whether it's from a health sustainability or even just an ethical um, perspective. So fast forward, we had known each other for about seven years and I had decided to take a career break. So I went to do a, a master's degree in, in Boston and uh, Dr. Sherrod, um, at that stage, I, I wasn't looking to do a startup at all. 
Uh, I was at the age where I was ready to settle down, start a family and just live a quiet, peaceful life. And Dr. Sherrod <laughs> was actually the one who kept uh, contacting me and hassling me and saying, Andrew, we really should do something together. We've got these complementary skill sets. And I kept saying, no, 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 doctor, I, I really would like to just take things easy. And he finally, um, we, we talked about a couple of ideas and we kind of finally settled on having a clinically backed health and wellness brand and uh, that we wanted to bring to market. And the real genesis for it was that we thought that the not only the US healthcare system, but a lot of different healthcare systems around the world are dysfunctional. They're basically incentivized to only treat you when you're sick. You come into the system. Great. They're incentivized to keep you sick and keep you paying uh, money. And that's just how the incentives are aligned. And so we're both a big believer in preventative health and wellness. But then we also saw the industry, particularly as it related to beauty, was full of a lot of marketing fluff. And so we just really wanted to focus on preventative um, health and wellness and all, but using products that we believed that were clinically backed and bringing them uh, to the mainstream consumers. So that's basically the genesis of Skin by Dr. Sherrod. Yeah. And you, you make a great point. Not, not that it's this like Australia or New Zealand versus the US or anything of that nature, but obviously there's a different approach, you know, being based in and being from, you know, another country when you attack the US uh, from a marketing perspective. So what is uh, the different strategy you have in coming into the US market? Yeah, and, and that is a great question because I think a lot of brands that are US-centric may not have an idea of everything uh, that's out there. So Skin by Dr. Sherrod is already the number one uh, anti-wrinkle uh, elixir um, out of New Zealand. And we just also think that there's a real strong brand essence there with exporting the Australian and New Zealand heritage, which stands for quality, um, quality ingredients uh, to the U.S. market. What we've seen with the U.S. is even though the demographics are quite diff- uh, quite similar to Australia and New Zealand, is the market here is extremely competitive and it's also extremely large. And so some DTC models that might work uh, in Australia and, the US, uh, and New Zealand would need a completely different model in the U.S. What we've seen a lot is that to get to scale in the U.S., a lot of brands could just burn a lot of cash trying to get that to scale. So in the U.S., our strategy has really been we, we're a big believer in D2C because we think that ultimately having that direct line to your customer and being able to communicate with them is probably the, the thing that's of most value. But in order to get awareness in the U.S., you actually need to go omni-channel first. And so we really see we've got an omni-channel strategy but we really see those other channels as almost awareness channels that then help drive our D2C traffic. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that's a great point. And before we dive deeper into marketing, because I have a few questions to ask on that on that topic, um, talk to me about the development process um, of your non-tox technology. That's sort of your hero project product, I would imagine. Talk to me about the, the process of developing the product and what differentiates it. Yeah, no problem. So look, our, we don't have so much a hero product as a hero compound, which is the no-tox uh, compound. We've got the global trademark um, to a proprietary compound. Essentially what no-tox is, uh, it's a compound which is the first ever medically proven non-toxin-based uh, anti-wrinkle serum. So to explain that a bit more is, say if you go and get Botox, essentially Botox is just paralyzing the muscle 
but your fault lines on your on your face essentially stay the same depth and width. So if you stop using Botox, the wrinkle that you had, say, five years ago will essentially be of the same uh, width and depth that you previously had. Now, what Dr. Sherrard did is with Notox, he's been developing it probably there's 10 years um, of R&D. This is wow. his seventh formulation of the compound um, because you basically have a one-year lag from uh, development to then testing. He essentially came up with the formulation and the secret source really is in the sequencing of manufacturing and then the relative proportion of ingredients where he was able to show on, on a clinical trial on real patients. So the reason why that's important is you'll see a lot of skincare and beauty brands talk about um, the science, but a lot of those are clinical trials on collagen samples in a Petri dish, but they don't take into account skin types genetics, uh, lifestyle factors, as well as climate. And he was able to test uh, on real patients uh, for over a 30-day period where he showed by applying this non-toxin-based compound, there was a statistically significant reduction in the width and the depth of wrinkles using a non-toxin-based solution. And this was after we put the um, participants' uh, faces under essentially a scanner, which examines the depth and the width of wrinkles uh, at, at a at a micro level. That's so interesting. And just is this essentially meant to be a product to replace filler and Botox? Or is this something that maybe you're meant to use like in conjunction with it? So it is like lessening those wrinkles while you maybe still have Botox? Um, or what's your approach? Yes, that? that's a great question. And we actually see two approaches. We think it can, number one, first and foremost, I guess, provide a non-toxin, non-toxin needleless alternative for people who are thinking about Botox, but don't, are either afraid of needles or the side effects such as skin infections, uh, you know, potential droopiness um, of parts of their face. So it's a non-toxin-based needleless alternative. But what we've actually seen, which was super surprising to me, was that many of our customers are existing Botox users. And what they found is that typically when you use Botox over a prolonged period, whether that's 10, 20 years plus, you start to get a very uneven impact on your face, which makes sense. You either get, say, an enlarged nose or forehead or the area around the mouth. And so what we found is you can actually use the Notox compound as a complement to get a much more natural, firmer look. Uh, for the Botox that you're using. So that was something that came as a complete surprise to me. That Yeah, that is surprising, actually. A lot of our customers wrote to us and said, hey, I actually use Botox, but I I am very wary of the lumpiness and the unevenness that's going to happen over time. And we actually see Skin by Dr. Sherrard as a way to get just a much more natural look um, in complement to that. So there's really those two use cases. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, the thought process about aging has changed drastically, especially since social media has just exploded. And I feel like there's been an immense amount of pressure on people as they age to to pretty much do anything they can to look, you know, young and youthful, but it's definitely, there are a lot of downsides to it, obviously. Um, So do you, do you find there, like most of your customers are really, really seeking out an alternative for, you know, all of these things that do come with potentially massive consequences. Do you think like the trend of just fillers and all of these things are kind of coming to an end? No, I don't think they're coming to an end. But uh, one thing that was, again, surprising uh, to us is when we first started, we thought that this was 
purely a treatment product. So you have an existing line or wrinkle that you notice around the mouth or the eyes or the forehead, and that essentially you would be using our product simply as a way to treat that specific area. But what we actually found is that our customers are basically bifurcating into two different types, those coming in for treatment of a specific problem they have, but we're also noticing a younger demographic that's say, let's call it in the 25 to 40 year category, that's really looking for a preventative solution. And I think what that's coming from is, you know, injectables haven't been around, they've been around for some time, but, you know, there's no, let's call it studies or impacts of using it for the last 40 or 50 years. And I think what people are becoming much more conscious of is, hey, there are some risks over if I use it, especially because people are starting younger and younger. And if I have this solution that's affordable and that actually gives me a much more non-toxic approach over that prolonged period of time, why wouldn't I go down that approach um, because it's just much more, I can use it for a 20, 30 year period without the risk of those side effects. Definitely. You mentioned the word affordable. So that was segueing perfectly into my next question. I want to talk about price point. I was very surprised actually by the price point. It is very reasonable. Uh, just to give you an example for anyone listening, the neck and face smoothing elixir is $95 US. Very reasonable price point. So how are you able to do that? And do you still consider yourself to be a luxury product? That's a fantastic question. And it's something that Dr. Sherrod and I discussed at length. I'm sure. We started with the idea, hey, this is what, say, an Augustinus beta is doing. And you typically see products between the two to $400 range. And then what we Yeah, I mean, they're so expensive. (laughs) That's that's right. And and I think a lot of uh, brands have this whole idea of, hey, I want to start a luxury brand from day one. And I think that's completely fine, but you just have to understand what you're trying to build and therefore what that requires. And so the reason why we actually started off as very uh, at that price point. So in in New Zealand, the product was retailing at over $200 for the same product. And then Dr. Sherrata and I just came to the conclusion that our original mission was actually to democratize healthcare. And we don't want, let's call it anti-aging to be just reserved for those who are the select few who can afford it. We actually want it to be something that's affordable to everyone. So we actually probably went through a rebrand exercise about six months ago where we changed the price point, changed the messaging. And so we're really coming at it from the perspective of affordable luxury, that it's something that everyone can access. To give you some sense, the typical cost of Botox today is between $1,200 to $1,500 a year. So even that is a is a product that starts to alienate um, a lot of people who can't afford it, especially over a period of years. So we wanted to underprice that so people not only had a non-toxic alternative, but one that was actually affordable and below the price of Botox. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely definitely not cheap, that's for sure. Um, how, how do you think your best effectively can you like how did you do this rebrand rebrand excuse me to communicate that yeah that is a a great question and again one thing that i think all entrepreneurs will realize is that getting your brand on point is a continuously evolving proposition our brand was actually originally called notox um, that was the name of the brand. We had the global trademark to the NOTOX, which stands for non-toxin-based um, anti-wrinkle serum. That was a term coined in the Journal of Clinical and Cosmetic Dermatology. But what we actually found was that 
with the consumer, they found it a bit kitschy, or at least, you know, it, it sounded like a, a bit of a gimmick. And so what we really wanted to do was bring the doctor's reputation as a leader in this area, as a leader of the genetics of health and wellness to the fore, and then have the Notox uh, proprietary compound as a sub uh, selling point of the brand. So how we went about doing that is we evaluated our first months of performance in New Zealand. We looked at what was working, what wasn't working. And again, to give you that some sense, we actually went out to market and we engaged um, uh, a consultant who also was a friend of ours to get a lot of feedback in terms of from customers, editors, publishers, and really get their sense of what they thought about the word Notox versus a whole range of other names that we tried. And Skin by Dr. Sherrard is ultimately where we landed with the compound as kind of the star compound beneath that. Yeah, I mean, I maybe my opinion's unpopular, but I do I, I do like the no-talks from the standpoint of, I think it makes it very clear what it is from the get-go. So definitely understand the, the change in brand name, but I actually love no-talks, so. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we think it's great uh, as well. And it's, it's just so clear. Yeah, we try to bring, I mean, you know, when it's no talks, you only need to say those two words and right. straight off. Right. So that's, that's what I actually love about it. Um, so let's go back to marketing since it seems to be your very much your strong suit. Um, talk to me about your data driven approach to growth and marketing and how are you constantly optimizing each channel and actually beyond that, what's been the most effective for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what I'll give some um, background is when I was at business school, we actually had the CEO of the fastest growing retailer at that time uh, in the US uh, come and give us a business case study. That brand, which is now a house of brands, is called Nectar. They actually do the online mattress in the box. And oh. the funny thing that if you, you if you had told me, hey, I'm going to start a mattress company in 2007, <laughs> I would have said that's a horrible idea. Have you have you heard of Helix Sleep? Have you heard of Casper, which was listed at the time? And what we actually saw, and that really turned the light bulb on to me, was in this case study, they basically had a very data-driven approach to their marketing. And so what that meant is uh, I've basically learned that and used the model um, for what we're trying to do here. So what we do is we, we're continuously testing different channels. And when I talk about channels, I mean distributing through estheticians, through spas, through trade shows, through online D2C, through wholesale agreements, um, ultimately through retail. And then we're constantly measuring the data so we can say, how does the consumer shop and then how do they convert? I think one of the misconceptions in D2C is they typically look at the channel on a standalone basis. So they'll say, my Facebook is doing this, my Instagram is doing this, or these are the sales I'm doing in retail. But there's this graph that I've actually kind of designed um, in a bit of software, which shows that the customer journey from where they get to awareness of your brand, education and conversion is actually a multi-mix of all those channels. And so how I'm looking at our channel strategy is we're continuously optimizing the mix between those different channels as you go through the funnel, the sales funnel. So for example, for awareness, you may be doing much more social as well as uh, physical, whether that's at trade shows. But then as they progress through the funnel, your channel mix, then when it comes to conversion, will be very different. It may be off Google search or alternatively um, off Facebook. So I think the real takeaway for your customers here is Look at the dollars you spend 
but it's not just the dollars you spend in the channel in totality. Look at the different parts of the customer buying experience and optimize your spend based on the different steps as you go through that funnel. And what I'll say is that there's no one playbook. It's up to every brand and what they're trying to build to work out what is that optimal mix for them. And that ultimately, what are we trying to optimize for? We're basically trying to optimize for LTV, uh, the long-term value over CAC, the cost of customer acquisition. And so I'm continuously looking at those metrics between uh, the different channels and how to come to a holistic mix for my business based on optimizing those different channels. Yeah, that's an unbelievable way to put it. When you say um, you're frequently looking, is this something you do daily or on a weekly basis in terms of like a deep analytical dive? Yeah, so it depends on the volume of data that you have. Uh, Once you have a lot of data, say what I would say is if you're making over a thousand sales a week, which is statistically significant, you can start to look at, sorry, I shouldn't say a thousand sales a week, a thousand sales a day. Then you start to have meaningful data as to then how to optimize. If you're in a product, which is a, a higher price point, but you're only making a couple of sales a day, the data is probably less meaningful. And then you'd probably sit at the end of uh, the month. So it really just depends on the volume of data that you think you can make a statistically significant judgment on. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, diving into operations, I'm curious, uh, maybe what are some of the challenges that have happened maybe post-COVID um, or some of the things you decisions you've made that you think have been the smartest in regard to operations? That is a great question. I mean, what we had seen um, with COVID, I think, is a lot of people had talked about the death of retail. The interesting thing that we've seen is that post-COVID now, everyone is just gagging to get out in person again and to have that in-person experience. I agree. So one of the things we've seen is, for example, beauty shows and trade shows and conferences, um, which basically were dead for the last three years, are starting to be a great channel because they're just so full of people who are uh, willing to come out again and see what's new. I think operationally, um, in terms of what we've done really well post-COVID, is not just one thing. What we typically do, and I would recommend all brand owners to do this, is almost institute a mechanism where you're reviewing your brand holistically every three months and just say, where are our systems and processes? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What are some mistakes that we make that we won't make again? And write those lessons down. And you really use that almost like a decision-making guidance system as you go forward each quarter. That is a great piece of advice. Uh, For my final question, uh, what's next for you and Skin by Dr. Schrott? Yeah, it's it's an exciting journey. Um, As I mentioned, I think our key differentiator from other beauty brands that we have is we've set up our own research lab out of the University of Auckland, and we have Dr. Sherrard in the lab. And so as opposed to, say, ordering formulations or talking to people, we really can do the primary research. So our ethos is anything we release is going to have a clinically backed study that's published in a peer-reviewed journal article. The product that I'm most um, excited for is we have a jawline lifter and toner that is currently in the lab at the moment and undergoing a clinical trial. We're expecting to release it at the end of this year or the start of next year. But this really comes down to what we're trying to do here is 
I go out into market, look at the operations, listen to feedback from customers and what I could see from both men and women was just this overwhelming desire for a jawline lifter toner. And I basically went to the doctor. I said, doctor, can we make this? And then he goes back into the lab and makes it and round and round we go in that that flywheel. So that really is basically bringing in our, our, uh, on the immediate horizon is new products that actually worked, that are backed by evidence and bringing them to the US market. Longer term, again, we think we have uh, something real special to leverage with the New Zealand origins of the brand. So I think Asia will definitely be on the cards, um, you know, once we have that real brand presence in the US. But um, definitely keep out, uh, keep a lookout for the jawline lift and toner. I think it's just got so many applications for both genders and it's something that we just see cries, uh, customers crying out for. Yes, it's definitely a trend uh, in the US market for, for sure. So Thank you, Andrew, so much for talking with me today. I loved hearing all of your stories. For anyone listening who wants to find out more information about yourself and Skin by Dr. Sherrod, where should I direct them? Yeah, go to our website, which is Skin by Dr. Sherrod. Sherrod is S-H-A-R-A-D.com. And it's the same handle for our Instagram, for our TikTok, from our Facebook. I really encourage everyone, just go to the website and have a look at Dr. Sherrod. He's one of the most ethical and a kind gentleman that I've ever worked with and really proud to call him my co-founder. That's so nice. I think that's the nicest thing you could say about anyone. So people will be sure to, to check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Takara. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to leave a review and subscribe to all future episodes. For show notes and resources mentioned, go to glamandgrow.co. This show was produced by Wavebreak. If you're an e-commerce marketing leader who wants to take your email and CRM program to the next level, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Wavebreak. Most brands don't email right and it costs them. With ad costs getting more and more expensive, a world-class email and SMS program is essential. This is why Wavebreak exists. We're the premier email and SMS marketing agency that helps brands take their retention programs to the next level. If you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co slash call.